Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at, at Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And today we jump into Revelation chapter 4, which finds us in the throne room of God. And this really starts out what we normally think of when we think of the book of Revelation. Um, having passed through Jesus' seven letters to the churches, and now we start out the main section of the book, which is as John is told, the things that must take place after this. When I was growing up, I used to love watching the NFL draft every year. Um, don't do it quite as much now, but uh, even more so now, what they do during the NFL draft is that they will give you an inside look at the team's war room uh, before the pick is made. And so they, they don't really give you any audio or any inside info, but they will show you the camera shot of what's happening in a team's war room as they're preparing to make a draft pick, usually right before that team makes a pick. And so as you're watching, the events that are taking place in the war room directly impact the events that then play out on the stage a couple minutes later. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 4 and moving into chapter 5 is very much that idea. We are given an inside look at God's war room, so to speak. And as John is, is brought up before the throne of God above, what we see is that the events that are taking place in heaven directly impact the events that then we see playing out on earth, starting in Revelation chapter 6. And so follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 4. We'll read all 11 verses. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes, with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist 
and were created. I hope that as you followed along reading Revelation 4, that there was one word which stood out among all the others, and that is the word throne. God's throne is the central feature in chapters 4 and 5. In just these two chapters, the word throne is used 17 times. And it starts the use of the word throne. From chapter 6 through 22, it's used 21 more times. But here in these two chapters, 17 times the word throne is used. And that's because the, the throne is that central feature. It's what our attention is drawn to. It's what John's attention is drawn to as he enters the divine presence. Not only does John see God seated on the throne in verse 2, but the throne itself becomes the reference point for everything else that he sees. A rainbow surrounded the throne. The 24 elders were seated on 24 thrones that were around the throne. Lightning and thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne. A sea of glass was also before the throne. The four living creatures were around the throne. And the 24 elders fall down before the throne and cast their crowns before the throne. This begins, uh, in a lot of ways, all the symbolism that we associate with the book of Revelation here in this chapter. And we are tempted to get distracted by all the symbolism. And we're tempted to read the book of Revelation and try and figure out, well, what do all these symbols mean? What are they in reference to? And that's how we get pulled away. And that's why Revelation isn't such a comfort to many believers, as we said way back at the beginning of this series. We don't find comfort in the book of Revelation because we get distracted by the things that we don't know instead of focusing on the things that we do know. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today trying to give all of the different explanations for what some of the symbolism could possibly mean. Uh, there are a lot of books and commentaries and other things that you can go to, uh, cross-references cross in your Bibles uh, to figure out what the Old Testament references are. Uh, instead, what I want to focus on is what we, we do see, what we know is going on here. Because before we see anything else that's going to happen on earth, before we see anything else in Revelation, the thing that we are struck with is the throne of God. We must not miss what is happening in Revelation 4 and 5 if we want to find comfort in then what comes in the remainder of the book. Because this is how Jesus starts John out. This is how John starts us out. He starts us out in Revelation 4 and 5 with the throne of God. G.K. Beale commenting on this says that uh, he emphasized that the throne is front and center. And he says the purpose being to emphasize the sovereignty of God over all human history. All heavenly beings find their significance in their placement around the throne. And all the earth's inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude to God's claim to rule over them from this throne. Regardless of how rampantly evil seems to run and to cause God's people to suffer, they can know that his hand superintends everything for their good and his glory. This is of special significance to churches facing persecution, suffering, and the temptation to compromise their faith. 
Before he gets into anything else, John is making sure we know that whatever is happening here on earth, whatever is happening in our churches, in our lives, in our country, in our world, God is still on his throne. And that is what gives us comfort. And so we're going to look at three things that John says about God on his throne here in this passage. And the first of those is that God is accessible on his throne. God is accessible on his throne. Right from the start in verses 1 and 2, it says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. If you've spent any time reading through the Old Testament, uh, especially some of the prophets, you know that there are, are several scenes in the Old Testament that this is very similar to. Uh, there are other biblical visions where uh, Old Testament prophets were given glimpses of God's throne that are very similar to John's, and specifically Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 have visions of God's throne that are very similar to this one. But John's vision of God's throne is also somewhat similar to other visions in other ancient literature. Now, the Bible is not the only piece of ancient literature that has people ascending into the throne room of a deity. But there are also, not surprisingly, very distinct differences between biblical throne, throne room visions and those that we find in, in the literature from other cultures that surrounded the Israelites. And it's very much those differences that help us to see how significant this vision is. And we see one of those differences right here from the start. Typically, in ancient literature, when a character was caught up uh, or was, was um, being granted entrance into the deity's throne room, it wasn't something that he just walked right in. He had to go on a long, arduous journey filled with many dangers and daunting tasks. And it was often this, this grand epic where the person had to fight through all of these different obstacles and tests and challenges in order to finally stand in the throne room of the deity. But that's not what happens here in Revelation chapter 4. John's journey into God's throne room consists of an open door, an invitation to come in, and then his being ushered in by the Spirit. And so John does not need to do anything of his own effort. He is invited in. The door is open. He hears the invitation to come, and the Spirit brings him into the throne room of God. And we see the full Trinity at work, especially once we get into Revelation 5, but even here in Revelation chapter 4, because the Father is the one seated on the throne, and Jesus is the one, as we already saw in in the letters to the churches, Jesus is the one who opens the door that no one can close, and the Spirit is the one who brings John into the throne room of God. But we need to be careful that we don't think that God is somehow changing how he's always been or that something is special about John, because as we read those Old Testament vision scenes, whether it's Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 or, or Daniel or Ezekiel, none of them had to do anything to enter God's throne room either. And in fact, the language here in Revelation 4, specifically uh, where the voice booms like thunder and calls John to come, is very similar even to the Exodus language, 
where God calls Moses to come up Mount Sinai to be in his presence. What we see in the Old Testament and what is reaffirmed here in Revelation chapter 4 is that entrance into the presence of God is always according to his will and by his grace. It is God's will and God's grace that grants entrance into his presence. It is never anything that we do on our own. And so just as it was God's will that brought Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, and just as it was only by his grace that they were able to stand in his presence, so it is with John, and of course, so it is with us. And we know from from Hebrews uh, that that we can approach the throne of God uh, for grace in times of need. And so John is able to just walk in, uh, in the spirit, into the throne room of God. He stands there according to the divine will and only by divine grace. But then as John walks in, one of the first things that he sees is a rainbow surrounding the throne. And the rainbow, of course, is a sign of God's covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world or its living creatures with a flood. And so the rainbow surrounding God's throne is a symbol of God's mercy. And similarly, he sees a sea of glass similar to crystal before the throne. Throughout scripture, the sea is an agent of chaos and evil. It's the home of Leviathan, the sea monster. And of course, the Red Sea specifically is an obstacle to God's people entering the promised land to receive their freedom. And the fact that the crystal sea uh, is before the throne indicates that John needs to cross this crystal sea before he gets to the throne of God. Before he reaches the inner sanctum, he has to cross this sea, just as the Red Sea had to be traversed before the Israelites could escape from slavery and reach the promised land. And yet the fact that the sea is like glass indicates that it has been subdued, that the chaos and evil have been subjugated to God's authority, and that the obstacles to our freedom and the obstacles to our entrance into the inner sanctum, into God's presence, have been removed. The Sea of Glass is also reminiscent of the bronze basin in the temple. And the temple, of course, was supposed to be this earthly image of a heavenly reality. And there was this huge bronze basin in the temple uh, that could hold something like 12,000 gallons of water. And it was in that basin that the high priest would pass through to do his ritual washing and cleansing before entering the presence of God to perform the sacrifices. And so the idea is that as John passes through this sea of crystal, it's not just symbolic of God having subjugated evil and God having removed the obstacles to our freedom and to our entrance into his presence. But it's also this idea that John, as he approaches the throne of God, is being washed and purified by God's holiness and his glory. And it is only as he is purified by God's holiness and glory that John is able to then stand before the throne. And so God is accessible on his throne. John is able to walk into the throne room. He is able to stand there before God. Secondly, God is absolute on his throne. God is absolute on his throne. Once again, we are 
confronted with the difference between other ancient visions of a divine throne room and John's vision of God's throne room. Because in many other instances in ancient literature, when they would describe the throne of the deity, they described it in very elaborate detail. They described it being very gilded with gold. They had all these gems and precious stones that were on it. They went into extreme elaborate detail describing their God's throne. Because the, the implication was is that if the God's throne was so majestic, if God's throne uh, had so much uh, glory to it, how much more majestic and how much more glory did the, did the God who sat on that throne, did the king who sat on that throne have? And yet notice here in Revelation chapter 4, although God's throne is the focal point of chapter 4, John does not really describe the throne. He describes what he sees around the throne, before the throne, coming from the throne, sitting on the throne. But the throne itself is just mentioned. And he does not describe the throne itself. But what he does describe as he looks is that he says it's not the throne that had all of these precious gems on it. It was not the throne that was so majestic and glorious. It was the one seated on the throne that looked like he, he himself was made up of precious gems. And he seems to indicate that it was that the, the throne and the one seated on the throne almost were, were it was like they were one. He literally says something like, and behold, the throne set in heaven and the seating on the throne. It was almost as though it is the nature of the throne to have God seated on it. And it was the nature of God to be seated on the throne. He does not really describe it as being the throne and the person seated on it, but almost as looking at the throne and looking at the one seated on it, it's looking at one thing. Peter J. Lightheart, in commenting on this idea, uh, talks about the difference between accident and essence. Have you ever taken a philosophy class? When something is accidental, it, it is not necessary to uh, a being's essence. Um, so I, my essence is human. Uh, the fact that I'm also a father is accidental. I can be human without being a father. And so my essence is human. My fatherhood is accidental. And Peter J. Lightheart, in commenting uh, on this idea that the throne and the one seated on the throne seem to be one and the same, says enthronement is not accident, but essence. John sees enthronement itself, enthroned, sheer, undiluted sovereignty, the God whose very being is to be king. This is what John sees as he enters the throne. It is part of God's being to be enthroned. It is part of God's being to rule. Part of his essence is his sovereignty. Part of his essence is the fact that he is on the throne. It is not possible to be God and not to rule. Uh, ruling is not accidental to God's nature. It is part of his essence. Uh, it is part of who he is. And that's why it wasn't the throne itself that was adorned 
with jasper and carnelian stone, uh, gems that represented a king's majesty and glory. It wasn't the throne that had the majesty and glory. It was the one seated on the throne who has the majesty and the glory. And similarly, whereas John sees a rainbow around the throne, uh, Ezekiel, in describing something very similar, saw the rainbow as being directly connected with the glory of the one who was on the throne. In Ezekiel 1, chapter 1, verse 28, it says, The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. And so in echoing Ezekiel, John is is really saying as well that the the rainbow, the glory of the rainbow seemed to be emanating from the one seated on the throne. It was part of God's glory that was shining forth from the throne was this rainbow. Similarly, in verse 5, John records lightning and thunder coming from the throne. Both of these were present at Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. And whenever they occur moving on in Revelation, it is always in connection with judgment. And this connection with Mount Sinai and judgment is important because many of the judgments in the book of Revelation do seem to be modeled after the plagues that God sent on Egypt in the book of Exodus. And so John made the connection and is making sure that we, his readers, make the connection as well between the one seated on the throne and the God of the Exodus. In other words, the God who was faithful to his people, even when it had appeared that he had forgotten them. Remember back in the book of Exodus, the uh, generations of people had been enslaved and they uh, had almost thought that maybe God had forgotten about them. And then we, but we find out in Exodus that God had heard the cries of his people. And so the God who was faithful to his people, even when it seemed as though he had forgotten them, and the God who was sovereign, even when it seemed that the, the Egyptians, the persecutors of his people were in charge, is the same God who continues to be faithful and sovereign in our circumstances. And so no matter what we are going through, and again, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis uh, in 2020. Um, and in recent weeks, we've had uh, all kinds of, of protests and riots uh, following uh, the, the killing of George Floyd. And there's all kinds of, of uh, uprising and instability and uh, people unsure what the future holds and financial instability, health instability. And at times it can feel like God has forgotten, uh, especially churches at the time I'm recording this still have not been allowed to open here in New Jersey. And it could feel as though we are crying out and God is not answering. And it can feel as though something is in control uh, that is not God. It can seem like he is not directing, he is not working all things for good, as Romans tells us. And yet John assures us here in Revelation 4 that the same God who heard the cries of his people in Exodus, the same God who was working all things for the good of his people, even as it seemed like Pharaoh was the one 
in control is the same one who is still on the throne today. That no matter what we are going through, no matter what we may face in the future, that God still is on the throne. And so he encourages that God is on the throne, but then he also reminds his readers, reminds us that God is not only on his throne, he is also ready, willing, and able to judge. And again, this is a comfort for his people, for uh, the people who were enslaved in Egypt. It was a comfort to, to know that God would judge the persecutors of his people. And we see that by the seven fiery torches burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And if you remember back from Revelation chapter 1, we said that this is the Holy Spirit, with seven being a number of completion and perfection. This is the complete, the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. And just as we said in Revelation chapter 1, that the, the way it was described was as though the Spirit was before the throne of God, ready to bring grace and peace to his people. Here he is before the throne of God indicating that the spirit is the way in which God oversees and judges his creation. That is the spirit that through which he oversees and judges the world. And we see this idea that God is able to see and judge all even in the four living creatures around the throne who have eyes all around and inside they're covered with eyes, with the implication being that they see everything. There is nothing that escapes their gaze. And of course, then it, the fact that they are falling and worshiping, that, that that is their primary function is to worship the one on the throne. If they see everything and they are mere creatures, they are mere worshipers, then how much more does the one on the throne see? And we see God's ability to rule and to judge as well in the 24 elders who are described as having crowns and thorns, uh, crowns and thrones themselves. And yet they fall down before the throne of God and lay their crowns before him. And so even these 24 elders who have some level of authority themselves subjugate their authority to the one on the throne. And this is, again, ultimately what John is wanting us to see. And we need to be careful that we don't miss this because we're so focused on what these symbols mean. There are several different interpretations of who the living creatures are, who the elders are, what do all the different uh, symbols that we see, the rainbow and the, the thunder and lightning, and what are the jasper and carnelian stone, what do all these things mean? What are they supposed to represent? What do they stand for? And we can get very wrapped up in trying to interpret the details that we really miss the forest for the trees. And what John wants us to see is that the one who is on the throne is the one who has the right and who does rule and judge everything. The circumstances that we live through might tempt us to think that he has forgotten us. It might tempt us to think that he isn't really in control. But he is. He is on his throne. He is accessible on his throne and he is absolute on his throne. He rules over everything. And finally, 
we see that God is adored on his throne. God is adored on his throne. John saw the four living creatures day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Again, I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time uh, identifying the possibilities of, of who these four living creatures are, who these 24 elders are, what they might represent. Uh, suffice it to say, I think it's likely that the Four living creatures, although uh, angelic beings, you see them uh, also in some Old Testament visions of the throne room, uh, that they are meant to represent the created order and the created order fa falling down and, and praising God day and night. The created order never stops praising the one that created it, never stop praising God for being holy and almighty, who is, who was, who is and who is to come. The 24 elders, whoever they may be, representing then the, the people of God, God's special creation instead of the general created order. And they also voluntarily lay down their crowns and praise God before the throne. And that is what I want to, to point out here about the worship before God's throne, is why they're worshiping. And these songs are important. A New Testament scholar, Craig Keener, points out the fact that the songs in Revelation function very much like the Greek chorus in ancient Greek theater. And if you uh, remember from high school or if you read uh, ancient Greek plays, you might remember that the Greek chorus shows up uh, at intervals throughout Greek dramas and comedies, and they kind of explain what's going on. They, they move the plot along. Uh, they make sure you don't miss anything. Uh, they kind of let the audience know what is happening in the play, uh, filling in gaps, letting them know things that might be happening behind the scenes and moving the play along instead of having dialogue all along the way. And Craig Keener says that these songs in Revelation very much function in that regard, that we need to pay attention to the songs because the songs let us know what the main point of the passage is the songs let us know what we're supposed to see so we don't get all wrapped up in the symbolism and distracted by all the details and get so wrapped up trying to come up with charts and timelines uh, that we miss the main point of what revelation is trying to show we miss the comfort that it's supposed to bring and so these songs that we find here at the end of revelation chapter 4 are very important they let us know what is going on and these songs the living creatures sing, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And the 24 elders sing, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Notice that both the living creatures and the 24 elders are worshiping God because he's on his throne. 
They are worshiping him for being sovereign. We will see in chapter 5, we'll get to God's redemption in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, they are worshiping him for his sovereignty. Holy, holy, holy speaks to the transcendence of God, his otherness, the fact that he is not the same as his creation, that he is something other than creation. He is above and beyond and against uh, anything that's created. He is greater than the creation. He is Lord and he is God. He is the Almighty. He is the one who can do anything that he sets his mind to do. He is the one who, whose plans cannot be thwarted. And he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. He is the one who rules all of history, past, present, and future, all at the same time. And John, in narrating, points out that the one on the throne is the one who lives forever and ever. He is even outside of time. And he is ruling all of it at once. And then the 24 elders praise him, say he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he has created all things. And by his will, all things exist and were created. The fact that I am standing here uh, as I record this and speaking these words, the fact that you are sitting uh, wherever you are on your your computer or your mobile device watching this and listening to the words, uh, we are only able to do that not only because he created us, because it is by his will that we exist, that we are. It is by his will that we are alive at this moment, that our atoms have not scattered uh, into oblivion, that they are being held together, that the world is still rotating, uh, around, revolving around the sun. Uh, all of that is according to God's will. He not only created all things, but it is by his will that they were created and that we continue to exist. And this is why he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And so it is the fact that God is on his throne, the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he rules over all things, that these living creatures and these elders are giving him praise. And so this is the comfort that John immediately gets and that he, he therefore shares with us as we are going through uncertain times. The primary comfort is not that we can properly identify every single thing in Revelation, that we can plot out the future, uh, that we can figure out who all the different uh, people are, who all the different, what all the different symbols are, uh, that we can look at the book of Revelation and plot out the future so that we know what's coming. The comfort is that no matter what comes, God is still on the throne. That he is the one who rules by his sheer essence. And then also that we have access to his throne room. That we can stand uh, before his throne uh, according to his will and by his grace. And therefore, he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. And we can be sure that, that no matter what is going on in our lives, whether it's the big national things that are happening at the moment or something that you personally have going on in your life, that even if it feels 
that life is out of control, even if it feels like no one hears you when you cry out, even if it feels like you have been forgotten, you can be assured that you have not. Because the God who created you, the God whose will causes you to exist even in this moment, is still on his throne. And we can approach the throne of grace for help in times of need. Thank you for joining us as we've gone through Revelation chapter 4 and John's glimpse at the throne room of God. And we will continue his throne room vision next time with Revelation chapter 5 as the focus shifts from God the Father's creation to God the Son's redemption.